So imagine a world, a world in which there's no automobiles or airplanes, so a localized world. There's no television or radio or internet, or even more comprehensively, there's no electricity. What in the world would people do in such a world? And yet, of course, that was the reality for all of the Earth's inhabitants until very, very, very recently. That's a world which would look and sound a lot different than our noise-addicted age, I think. I mean, you would have sounds. You'd have the sounds of children and family. You'd have the sounds of craftsmen and farmers. You would have the sounds of flocks, herds. But I think just thinking about it is enough to cause tremors of withdrawal for us moderns. But that's the world of the Bible. It's a slower world. It's closer to the ground. The sound is turned way down. Now imagine yourself in that world with both your ability to hear and speak taken from you. You can't hear You can't speak. You can't watch anything. I mean, except the already slow ancient world going by. And into this now total silence, you moved from relative silence to total silence. And you're in this deaf, mute condition for nine months. You're Zechariah. You're a priest in first century Israel. And you've just become, miraculously, a father in your advanced age. Nine months ago, you questioned the angel. You questioned this announcement about your wife Elizabeth's birth, uh, pregnancy. And the angel, because of your unbelief, said you would be unable to speak until the child was born. Now, it's clear from the text this morning, the gospel lesson I just read that not only could Zechariah not speak, but he had lost his hearing as well. We know that because in verse 62, we're told that people had to make signs to him, which indicates that he couldn't hear. So Zechariah has had a very long time to think when our text opens. And we're going to focus on his prophecy But first, there's this brief prelude where John the Baptist, on the day of his circumcision, is named by his parents according to the angel's earlier instructions. Elizabeth firmly makes it clear to the assembled relatives that he is going to be called John. And they're like, well, that's not a family name. There's no one in the family named John. So that's a point of contact between this world and ours, right? Your relatives can't keep their opinions to themselves. <laughs> they think they know what you should name your kid. So they start signaling to Zechariah for input. He takes a writing pad. He writes down his name is John. And immediately his tongue is loosed and he speaks. When his faculties return, they are rightly ordered. That's what the discipline of a long silence can do. He blesses God. And shortly after that, filled with the Spirit, he prophesies. 
So this, this discipline of nine months, nine months of a kind of interior monastic silence, has turned the priest, Zechariah, into the prophet, Zechariah. And I want to look at his prophecy under, under two headings. They're there in the back inside page of the bulletin. Blessing for Christ and blessing for John. So first, blessing for, for Christ. So it's important to see that as we go through this text, the whole thing is a blessing or a benediction pronounced upon the name of God. Verse 68 starts, Praise be to, or blessed be, the Lord God of Israel. The, the first word here gives the song its name. Right? In the tradition of the church, benedictus is the Latin for blessed. And that's why we call the song the benedictus. But you can hear here an echo of what Paul does, for example, in that great chapter of Ephesians 1. Blessed be, that's how he starts, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on from there. The whole of Ephesians 1, one long, splendid doxology. Zechariah does the same thing here. So this, this is worship which teaches. Or to reverse it, this is teaching as worship. These are not two separate things. Like we have worship over here, and we have doctrine over here, or we have praise over here, and we have instruction over here. This is a God-centered benediction. Theocentric, God-centered. Praise. This is the atmosphere, the mood of Christian education, of Christian theology, of Christian thinking, of Christian speaking. Again, it takes a thick doctrine of God to create this kind of atmosphere. But it's very important because you can leave that blessing at the front behind. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now let's get on to the good stuff. When we are speaking, when we are instructing, we are worshiping, blessing, magnifying the name of the triune God. So in the second half of verse 68, he says that God has visited and redeemed his people. This is the gospel of Christmas in five words. Visited and redeemed his people. Salva Again, like Mary's song, the verbs are in the past tense. This salvation is certain because with the pregnancies of Mary and Elizabeth, it has already commenced it can already be spoken of as accomplished. Now, we say this a lot around here, especially at Advent time, but the first coming is the second coming in advance. The two comings are locked into each other. They entail one another. That's why at the conception of a baby, Mary can say, this baby, this has reordered the world. This visitation... It comes after a 400-year period of silence. You think Zechariah's silence is long. There's a 400-year period of silence from God to Israel. I mean, think about that. It's, it's a longer period 
than the time of the, you know, the, from about the time of the pilgrims to now in American history. That period of time with zero revelation or speech from God. And during that period, right, it looks like the hope of Israel's failed. And Israel's hope would have been looked upon as a kind of deluded foolishness by the nations. I mean, there's, they're, they're under the oppression of the Roman government. They have no monarchy. So we should feel in this text the force of the word visited. Visited. In some Bibles, it's come to his people, a less than pleasing translation. The word is visited. So this is not from God like a, you know, a sort of genteel, neighborly drop-in, this visit. This is a mighty act of divine invasion. That's what Christmas is. It's a visit from above. It's a visit from the age to come. It's a visit from the future because the presence of the kingdom is the presence of the future. It is the end of all things breaking into the middle of the weary, broken, dark world. This is why the New Testament repeatedly can tell us the Lord is near, the judge is at hand, the end of all things is at hand. Because with the first appearance of Christ, the second appearance is, if you will, at the door, underway. So when when Zechariah prophesies and he uses the word a visit, from on high, he's talking about an apocalyptic eruption by God into a world in bondage. Right? Into a world which has, if you will, previously been invaded by the powers of sin and death. And that's why the word visit here is coupled with the word redemption. He has visited his people and redeemed them. Now, we all know the word redemption. It's one of those words which probably suffers a little bit from overexposure to us. But this is a text which can help us recover it, like in its pristine purity. It's a, redemption is an act of liberation out of bondage, out of the slave market of sin, out of the devouring monstrosity of death out of the grave, out of the tyrannical powers and the realms of darkness, out of the dominion of Satan, out of our own forfeited inheritance. This visit is a visit by God to liberate or to redeem in that sense. And thus it's the visit of a warrior king who's coming to liberate the longing, captive, exiled people of God and the whole groaning creation. So again... At the very earliest parts of the gospel, the story widens out into this cosmic drama of a God who is going to heal the cosmos. All the way deep down into the entrenched evil in the secret parts of your soul and all the way out to the furthest galaxies. He visits to redeem. And what's utterly unique in this visit is that God comes not as he has in the past for something greater than the Exodus is here. He comes incarnate. And that means God comes without reserve. The God of Israel, 
And that is the identity of the visitor here. There's a visit. If you ask, who's the visitor? It's the God of Israel. He comes as man. And that means God pours his very being out. He pours his self out in self-emptying weakness. In humiliation. In suffering which begins from his conception. You've heard me say it many times, but I'll say it again. Calvin has this beautiful sentence where he says, from the very moment he took the form of a servant, he began to pay the price of our liberation. That is the form of redemptive power and might. All the things I said redemption means, it also means liberation at a price. And that price has already begun to be paid. In verse 69, Zechariah says he's raised up a horn of salvation for us. The horn is an animal image. We saw it earlier in the first Samuel series with Hannah. You know, imagine an animal goring another animal with its horn, and its horn's all bloody, and the animal lifts up its horn in triumph. It's that sort of image. He's done this in the house of his servant David. Now, notice something. It's it's been implicit in everything I've said, but I'm going to make it explicit here. Zechariah is John the Baptist's father, right? The story's about Elizabeth and her pregnancy with John. And when he prophesies, he's been speaking about Jesus from the beginning of the prophecy. It's indisputably clear now that that, that he's speaking. You expect him to be prophesying about his own son. That's why he's been silent for nine months. His faculties come back, and it's a prophecy about the one John the Baptist points to, right? I mean, Zechariah was a priest, and that means he and John the Baptist are from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is a descendant of David from the tribe of Judah. So what's important here is this. It's a recognition that all that Old Testament language about the horn of salvation and the mighty horn is now the horn of the Davidic king. All of this, verse 70 says, is as spoken by the Lord through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Now, I think we should pause on this. There there is a long, ancient line of prophets, Zechariah says, whose visions, whose oracles are now in these days coming to pass. I mean, this is one of the most potent arguments, I think, for the truthfulness, for the divine nature of the Christian faith, this argument from fulfilled prophecy. Now, people always have clever maneuvers. They can get around things. But this is an overwhelming avalanche of evidence here. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus, not just in a prophecy here or there, but in its very warp and woof. The whole texture of the book. He's the content, right? He's the inner substance of the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature and the kingdom. Peter says in his first epistle that the prophets sought eagerly 
to understand what they were prophesying and what the spirit of Christ, notice that, within the prophets was doing. Christ spoke by the prophets. He's often the speaker of the Old Testament text. Moderns don't often understand this, but the early church read the Psalms, in many cases, with Jesus being the speaker. And you can see this in the book of Hebrews and in other places. There is the whole of the thing which points to Christ. But we shouldn't underestimate the very pointed and specific texts which tell of the Messiah and which are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Alfred Edersheim, some of you may know the name, he was a 19th century Jew. He was converted to Christianity uh, in Budapest under the ministry of a Church of Scotland missionary, a missionary to the Jews named John Duncan. Now, Duncan's knowledge of Hebrew and his passion for the Jews uh, earned him this affectionate title of rabbi, Rabbi Duncan, by which he is still known, by the way, in Scotland. And Edersheim was converted under Rabbi Duncan's ministry. And Edersheim goes out and he writes these marvelous works on the relationship between Christianity and the Jews. He's famous for this very thick volume called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which describes what it's like to live life in first century Palestine, the world I tried to describe at the beginning. He also wrote a work, though, Edersheim did, called Prophecy and History in Relation to the Messiah, in which he records over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament which were fulfilled in Christ. He documents over 400 of them. That whole body of speech, written in the scriptures by the holy prophets from of old, is what Zechariah is alluding to here. As he spoke, not in this prophet or that prophet, but in all the prophets. What did he say? In verse 71, he continues that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74 says the same thing, rescued from the hands of our enemies. Now, of course, that sort of language, right? it could be heard by a first century Jew as political language pointing to the overthrow of the Romans. And lots of John's contemporaries heard it that way. But the rest of this text makes it clear that Zechariah understands the deep spiritual meaning of deliverance and salvation. That it is ultimately, if you will, eschatological. Spiritual deliverance in Christ, already yours by faith, eventuates in total deliverance from all enemies. The overthrow of sin, the destruction of death, the banishment of all the powers. That's what Zechariah is alluding to here when he says being rescued from the hand of all our enemies, every foe. The liberation and the salvation, which is in view here again, entails the renewal of the cosmos. So Zechariah, the priest turned prophet, he's already gone back through the prophets. He's gone back to the Davidic monarchy. And now in verse 72... Again, he follows Mary's lead here. He goes further back, further back into the history. And he says this, to show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers. To remember his holy covenant, 
the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham. So the mercy on display in the Christmas message is ancient mercy, right? Rooted in the promises made to Abraham, who precedes Noah by 450 years, Paul tells us. Right? That means this mercy is the mercy which visits and rescues. It's mighty mercy or abundant mercy, free mercy, powerful mercy. And the end, he says, is that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. All our days. It's possible here that holiness means keeping the first table of the law and righteousness means upholding the second table of the law. The first table being commandments 1 through 4, and the second being commandments 5 through 10. But again, Zechariah sees this liberation as liberation unto service, unto sanctity. This is the inner substance of the political freedom that many Israelites longed for. That freedom, that deep liberty as is at hand in Jesus Christ. And this is underway now in this text. But it orients us decisively as Advent always does. Karl Barth famously said, there's no season that the church can live in except the Advent season. Meaning, we are always looking back on Jesus' coming and anticipating the next one, so we are always an Advent people. Advent is the permanent posture of the church. And we are oriented then to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. John John here is speaking of holiness and righteousness in peace and in security before the Lord. We are looking in Advent to the consummation, to the final act of this invasion. There's one invasion, not two invasions. This is the bleeding, leading edge of the second invasion. There's just one invasion. And we are looking for its consummation where all enemies are overthrown. It is this that Abraham himself was looking for. We are told this by the author of the letter to the Hebrews. That Abraham was not looking for an earthly city. He was looking for a heavenly city. He was looking for the new Jerusalem. He was not looking for an earthly country. He had a better country. He confessed, along with all the Old Testament saints, that they were strangers and aliens, looking for a better city, a city with foundations, the city which descends from heaven at the coming of Christ, after the great white throne judgment, after the destruction of death, we see the city descend, Revelation chapter 21. The Advent texts are always turning us to this. In the the words of Titus 2, which is another classic lectionary Advent text, notice what Paul does here. He says this, The grace of God has appeared. That's this text, right? That's that's the baby being born. The grace of God has appeared. Now notice what he's going to do. He's going to collapse the two comings together. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait, while we look for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, Jesus Christ. There's literally one breath in Paul's thought between the appearance of the baby and the second coming of Jesus. They are always locked together, even as they are in the Zechariah text. So, the second point then, Zechariah turns to his own son. Blessings on John, the forerunner. Imagine the pride a father would have, humanly speaking here. And you, my child, shall be called a prophet of the Most High. The last prophet of the Old Testament. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Elijah, who comes before the great day, the terrible day of the Lord. You have to get yourself a John the Baptist Christmas ornament. Right? It's always strange that John the Baptist shows up in the middle of this Christmas stuff. But there's a deep gospel logic to it. You will go before the Lord, Zechariah says, to prepare his way. And to give the knowledge of salvation to his people through the forgiveness of their sins. Right? That's what John preached. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's this great, great forerunner. Notice three things here. First, salvation entails knowledge. You will give to the people of God the knowledge of salvation. It has cognitive content. And second, the essence of this knowledge is forgiveness of sins. Paul puts it this way. In Christ, we have redemption. We have liberation. The forgiveness of sins. And third, this means salvation is a pure gift. It's the sheer joy of your sins being forgiven freely. That's the product of the invasion or the visitation, the advent which is underway in Jesus. Now, you you look at John the Baptist's ministry in the Gospels and you ask yourself, how did John preach this forgiveness of sins? Well, we know how he preached it. right? We know what he said. He said... Who told you, you brood of vipers, to flee from the wrath which is to come? Oh, so the wrath which is to come is involved in this gospel. Then he goes on to say that the one who he preaches has already got his axe to the root of the tree and is ready to chop it down. Wait a minute, I thought this was just the baby in salvation in the first coming. What, John the Baptist is preaching the axe? He already has his winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, and to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. And if you look at the Christmas text in our lectionary, John the Baptist is there on like two or three weeks a year. Because the church has understood that the invasion of Christmas is the second coming breaking into time. That's why John the Baptist preaches this way. The end of all things is at hand. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. You have to flee from the wrath of God. The the Christ who is now appear is already ready to burn the chaff with fire and to gather the wheat into his barn. That's the message of the gospel. 
It's the message of Christmas. It's good news, this visitation. It wakes us up. And you know what? It's ultimately rooted back behind the prophets, back behind the Davidic monarchy, back behind the covenant with Abraham. It is rooted, blessed be God for this, it is rooted in the tender mercy of our God, the text says. That's where all this flows from. The deep feeling, the compassion of the God of Israel for his people, Zechariah says. By that same mercy, he says, the day spring or the sunrise from on high will visit us. There's the word again. It brackets the text, this visitation. The incarnate Christ, then, is the merciful light, the day spring from on high. This mighty visitation that we've been speaking of is a kindly healing light. The text says it will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. It's a graphic picture of the world apart from Christ. It it evokes like this, this party of stranded travelers in a pitch black night waiting for the dawn without any defense from the animals. It's Israel. It's you and I. It's all men and women apart from Christ. And these words, this light shining in the darkness on a people sitting in the shadow of death, they are used in Matthew's gospel for Jesus' long-promised appearing. Zechariah is alluding to Isaiah 60, which was our Old Testament lesson. I want you to notice something from Isaiah 60. It starts like this. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises on you. Darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises on you. His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light. Kings to the brightness of your dawn. The famous Christmas text. This is light from the future. Heavenly light. What does Isaiah do with this text? Just a few verses later in chapter 60, you heard this in the reading. He says this. You might guess the answer. I'll give it to you in advance. He locks the first coming into the second coming. He says, the sun will be no more your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. This is Revelation chapter 21 language again. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never again set. Your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow shall end. And he comes finally, Zechariah does, to the end of the text, and he says this, that this visitation is to guide our feet into the way of peace. Right? The peace of forgiveness, the shalom of redemption, and the liberation of the whole created order. The end of all things is eternal Sabbath peace, Sabbath rest, with God in glory. Post tenebrae lux. You might see it. After darkness light, it's it's in the bulletin. After darkness light. That's our slogan. There's a little explanation of it being rooted in the 16th century Reformation on the back of the bulletin. But its roots go back to this text in Luke chapter 1. And behind this text, to the words of Isaiah, 
and ultimately they go back into the tender mercies of our God. And so we live in the new covenant. We have this unspeakable privilege of living now, right? In the period after the light has been poured out into the darkness. When all the prophets, the promises of the old covenant are being fulfilled and brought to consummation in Jesus Christ. Of course, everyone still knows darkness. The world is full of it. We are full of it. And at times you can feel it. Right? The world has about it a palpable kind of despair. And that despair has a kind of deep logic, beloved. The world's a brutal place. It's a place of unspeakable darkness. It's a place which can often laugh and mock at a text like this and say, what, what light? What light? Well, it's the light of the future, which has broken into the present. You know, it's important to know that God has, as he promised, visited you. And he's visited you in mercy for the sake of your liberation and your healing. And Calvin says to know that, and he's he's actually commenting on this text. He says to know that God has visited his people is an invincible defense against despair. There are really two options for human beings, despair or this light. This is an invincible defense against despair. That's what the text is for us. The God of Israel in Jesus Christ has visited you. The day has dawned. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. That's Romans 13, locking both comings together as well. So it's important for us to confess in the teeth, right, of the fading, conquered, doomed darkness. Yes, the darkness is real, but it is fading, conquered, doomed darkness. Right? That God has invaded, that he's procured liberation against all foes. And that this kindly light is for your healing and for your illumination. So let us join Zechariah and his benedictions declaring this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people. Amen.